0: hello and welcome to a festive edition of opposition cast and as you may have guessed from the strictly inspired introduction to our theme music this week we have a very special guest with us it's nearly christmas and it's time for something a bit special as an early Christmas present. Uh, My guest this week is, uh, well, I'll let the voice of Strictly introduce her.
1: Former Home Secretary, Jackie Smith. I'm really looking forward to this. There's going to be fast movement, there's going to be fans, and hopefully there's gonna be a lot of fun.
0: Jackie needs to put Jackie Smith
1: Home Secretary to one side and become Jackie Smith. Showgirl extraordinaire. If she's loving it, we're all going to love it too. When you consider uh, <laughs> Theresa
0: May, darling, and her dancing, I think you're 10 times better than that. The voice there of Craig Revel Horwood, the Strictly judge, commenting on the dancing prowess of our guest this week, Jackie Smith. And you also heard in those clips there, Um, her former colleague, Ed Balls, who also trod the dance floor in an earlier series. But before she was a Strictly star, uh, Jackie Smith was the first female Home Secretary, appointed by Gordon Brown in 2007 to that role. And prior to that, she was the Government Chief Whip to Tony Blair. And it was really that role which prompted me to ask her to join us on the podcast The Chief Whip is the person who is responsible for delivering the votes for the government that allow it to get its legislation through Parliament. To that end, they have to ensure that they're not going to be defeated by the opposition opposite them in the House of Commons, but they also have to ensure they maintain discipline within the parliamentary party and manage the internal opposition and dissent that often occurs. Perhaps one of the most famous holders of the office was a fictional one, Francis Urquhart, the star of House of Cards, and this is how he introduced his role.
1: I'm the chief whip, merely a functionary. I keep the troops in line. I put a bit of stick about. I make them jump. And I shall, of course, give my absolute loyalty to whoever emerges as my leader
0: the actor Ian Richardson there in that iconic role as Francis Urquhart in House of Cards. And the portrayal of the role of the Chief Whip in that programme was of a rather Machiavellian figure who was involved in plotting the overthrow of the Prime Minister of the day. And without giving too much away, there is some discussion in our interview with Jackie Smith uh, about what happened as Tony Blair uh, faced the end of his premiership and a rather impatient Chancellor of the Exchequer next door, eager to take over. But before we uh, hear from Jackie, uh, I just wanted to include as well um, some of the reflections of other former holders of the job. This is from a documentary made by Michael Cockerell in 1995, where he spoke to two former chief whips, uh, whose voices we're going to hear now. Firstly, William Whitelaw, who was... Chief Whip to Edward Heath in the 1960s, and then uh, Ted Short, Edward Short, who was Harold Wilson's Chief Whip. You've got to be totally straight with your Prime Minister. You need, if possible, to be very close to that Prime Minister. And he has got to, or she, has got to trust them absolutely completely. Of course, the Chief has got a team of people who all go to the Member's Tea Room, which is the great gossip place in this building. And they sit at tables there and talk to members, they know everything, everybody's opinion on everything, they know what's going on, they know of any plots that are being hatched and they're, they've got their ears to the ground all the time. All that intelligence comes to the chief whip and uh, if necessary it goes to the prime minister. So that's what some of the former holders of the role thought of it. So let's uh, move on now to our discussion with Jackie Smith and as well as discussing her time as chief whip we also mentioned her earlier career as an education minister and, of course, her time as Home Secretary and her dealings with the opposition then. But, of course, we had to begin by talking about Strictly. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Now, I gather you're um, rather busy this week.
1: You're um, preparing for your return, your triumphant return to Strictly. That's right, Nigel. I am currently in a glamorous hotel bedroom in Elstree in return to my strictly bubble um, because we're all, um, all of us back this weekend for the final. Uh, You know, I had slightly hoped that people were going to have realised the error of their ways and they'd sort of decided that I really should have got all the way through to the final and lifted the glitter ball, but unfortunately not. But um, the the, uh, group dance is going to be very, very good fun. We were rehearsing it yesterday and it's lovely just to be back to sort of bookend my Strictly adventure.
0: You haven't been doing a Donald Trump and saying there was been massive fraud and that it was a complete travesty.
1: <laughs> tempted, very tempted to tweet, you know, um, and to slag everybody off that didn't vote for me. And particularly, of course, Craig. But I managed to resist the temptation. <laughs>
0: um, and it was your first return to elected politics, really, wasn't it? The well, <laughs> Public vote.
1: Do you know, funnily enough, I was saying to somebody... Yes. Caroline, that's right. We were just talking about what it's like when you are voted out. And I mean, I have to say on Strictly, they look after you very well. They take the duty of care very, very seriously. But there is that thing where you're sort of really, really part of it. And then you get voted out, and pretty well you're sort of off. And I said, and Caroline said she found it quite difficult. And I said, look, it, the closest thing I can liken it to is losing an election. I mean, first of all, you've got that moment when you're standing up on the stage with the light shining on you, and I think they should do this for general election counts actually. And you lose, and the light goes red, you know. <laughs> um, and then you've got that moment. Um, when you sort of suddenly realise that previously you were something and now you're not, you know, I mean, to be honest, you are always a Strictly celebrity. So that's a lovely bit about it. But yes, you're right. Um, getting on the wrong side of a public vote is not something that has never happened to me before. No.
0: <laughs> well, I sympathise. I mean, it's something that I, um, I experienced in 2014 um, when I lost my council seat. And at least you didn't get elbowed in the head, which is what happened to me <laughs> when uh, we were gathered around the returning officers table. And um, as you'll know, you get the result just before it's announced and all of the um, other candidates were uh, gathering around to sort of scribble down the numbers. Um, and just as as, as we realised that they'd beaten me, this sort of cheer went up, and they sort of they all kind of like jumped in the air and managed to elbow me in the head, which was uh, a lovely way to end my time on the council. <laughs> no, it's um, never
1: easy. Mike it's... Foster will tell you that a very uh, Mike Foster, former MP for Worcester, who had was my agent in 1992, and was involved in politics in Redditch, will tell you that the one of the first election counts I ever went to, where I lost a council seat because the anti-poll tax union so that tells you how long ago mm, it was took charge. um uh, took a quite a few votes which i thought of as mine you know um i had to be held back from Basically, going to nut the guy. So um I have calmed down. I have calmed down over the years. I <laughs> think it's to say.
0: Oh dear me! So as I was saying to you before we started recording, I've been looking for an excuse to get you on the podcast <laughs> um because um for uh, there might be some of our listeners who um, shockingly don't listen to the For the Many um, podcast, which you do with Ian Dale, and uh, I highly recommend that anyone who doesn't listen to that um, subscribes to it. Uh, I'm going to try not to sort of make too many references or in jokes uh, uh, to, to to that. Um, um, I think we'll have we're to going ta- to keep the smut down. We're, we're now, going to dial ready? down the smut level um, uh, for those who, who are serious academics and commentators who listen to um, opposition cast. Um, the For The Many podcast is uh, a great political podcast, which uh, also has its uh, its fair share of smut. Um, so um, I'll, I'll try and keep that to, to, to a minimum. But um, uh, the reason I, I wanted to speak to you was really because you had obviously experience as uh, former Home Secretary. And part of what I think is interesting about um, the way that opposition works um, in the UK is there is a lot of consultation or there is a relationship between the official opposition um, and the government. And I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of some of some of those things. But also before that, you were uh, the government chief whip. And when we think of opposition, we do generally think about the, the opposition across the chamber of the House of Commons between the, the government and the opposition. But opposition also exists within parties. And when you're a governing party, managing dissent is not just about managing sort of the relationship with with opposition mps it's also about managing that that dissent within your own ranks mm. so had you um, had any experience of that before you you became chief whip you, you, you i think were quite unusual in the fact that i don't think you had been a whip before you were appointed to that to that role was it something that you were familiar with as a as, as, as what the job involved
1: i think i was nigel and i think that's part of the reason why tony blair asked me to do the job. Immediately previous to being chief whip, I was the schools minister and responsible particularly for what became the 2006 Education Act, uh, in which um, I have to say partly because of the way that people insisted on spinning it, but also because of some of the content where we, for example, developed the academy programme and set up this new status of school called a trust school, um, there was considerable internal um, opposition from Labour MPs who felt that this was somehow or another an attack on the sort of comprehensive system. It was an attempt to bring in selection by the back door. Neither of those things were true. It wasn't helped by Alistair Campbell's comment about bog-standard comprehensives mm-hmm. at the yes. time. Um, but, but therefore, and, you know, Uh, comprehensive education is something that pretty well across the spectrum of the Labour Party people hold very near to their hearts so we actually had quite a big um, task and project to manage internal concern about that piece of legislation which of course being a Tony Blair education bill was something that was very close to his heart and very he was very keen that we got this through so I was running I suppose a sort of Complementary WIP's operation um, in uh, being that person who was bringing together the groups of MPs who were concerned about it, thinking through the concessions. We used to gather together a a, a sort of weekly, if not more frequent, meeting in my office in the Department for Education with the WIP, the number 10 representative, um, uh, the special advisors at the Department for Education to try and sort of work out where we were with the sort of internal opposition, what concessions we could offer, who we needed to pick off, all of that sort of classic stuff, which I think because we were successful at doing it and I'd sort of developed lots of relationships with a whole range of different Labour MPs probably was the reason, I mean, I don't know, I didn't, I never asked him, but probably why it was the reason why Tony Blair thought, okay, let's, you know, I can see her as a chief whip and perhaps that's a, a role uh, that I could offer her. And that's it, it, really
0: interesting because I'm, I mean, in in my former life, I was um, education special advisor to the Conservatives at the time. And I remember all of the debates over that, uh, firstly, the white paper, and then the bill. And as you say, there was a, a significant amount of opposition on the Labour backbenches to elements of it. And I remember sort of clause by clause, there were different yeah. um, groups of MPs who were concerned about different things. But one of the interesting things from an opposition perspective, you'll remember David Cameron's first prime minister's questions the first thing that he said to tony blair across the dispatch box Um, everyone remembers now the he was the future once line Um, but but actually what he was talking about in that was um, the education reforms and he he said then that one of the things that the prime minister and he would have to work together on was getting these reforms through and he was i think quite cleverly trying to Um, exacerbate the divisions within the Labour ranks by saying you can be as bold as you want because you've got my support on it yeah Um, that can't have been helpful for you in that that regard
1: he he was right it did exacerbate (laughs) the divisions you know so quite often we would have people saying well one of two things either look the Tories are supporting this so it must be something bad and therefore you know my my worries and concerns about what you're trying to do through the back door to introduce selection or to reduce the comprehensive principle must be right or secondly look I'm really uncomfortable about this and it won't matter if I don't support it because you'll get it through anyway because the Tories will vote for it so there was the sort of principled opposition and then there was the pragmatic I want to sort of keep my um, constituency party on side but not actually defeat the government type um, internal opposition as well going on
0: and remind me who was the chief whip at the time then Hilary Armstrong it was Hilary Armstrong yeah. yes yeah, yeah, okay yeah. um and so you had a sort of a kind of war room going on between you and yes. the whip's office to to, to manage that yeah. um how did you how did you persuade those MPs who as you say um either because they have personal convictions um about it or perhaps more commonly because they were afraid of their constituency parties how does it, how do those conversations go um, yeah. when you're when you're talking to those MPs I mean are you Are you uh, is it the carrot or the stick mainly that you're, you're you're using to try and persuade them to get back in line?
1: Well, it's interesting because I think if you are the minister, it's slightly different to if you're the chief whip. So if you're the chief whip, there is more stick. Not that I was ever a very sticky chief whip, I have to say despite me having said that you know my view of a carrot was a stick painted orange i generally was not a sort of harsh i don't think chief whip i was one that sort of believed in the power of persuasion um but if you're the sort of minister doing that persuasion job then essentially you are focusing down on to trying to reassure people about the detail of the um policy that is in the white paper for example because i actually handed over the I became the chief whip before the bill went through its committee stage and it was Jim Knight I think that took it through um, took it through that stage so I was at the sort of white paper stage where people were saying we don't like this we're not going to support it when it comes to second reading etc and um, so there was a lot of inviting groups of people in to talk to us Um, the prime minister talking to people Ruth Kelly who was the the secretary of state talking to sort of cabinet colleagues and just trying to reassure people about around the detail of the policy so it was very much policy focused as opposed to i think when you're in the whip's office you can bring in a whole range of sort of wider issues people's careers obviously um you know, uh, other, enlisting people's colleagues and friends to try to work on them, all of those sorts of tactics that you, that you, 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 that you would use if, you were, if it was a pure whipping operation or if it wasn't the policy element of the whipping operation, put it that way. And so when you
0: um, became chief whip, as you say, there's a slightly different approach that you take to colleagues. It was quite a febrile time on the Labour backbenches when you took over, uh, to put it mildly.
1: Yes, Did- I mean... <laughs> I, th- I sometimes say about my time as Chief Whip, I never lost a vote, but I lost a Prime Minister. Uh, because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't very long after I became Chief Whip that you're right, the sort of low-level feverishness of the TBGB's, um, you know, the sort of Tony Blair Gordon Brown angsts uh really began began to bubble up as the pushing by Gordon Brown for Tony to name the day when he was going to go um and there was the sort of curry plot and uh the organizing of labor mps to put pressure on tony blair to go and all of that which sort of also had ramifications within the whips office because actually there were two or three whips who were sort of rather clearly in that um in that camp and when whips start losing their absolute loyalty for the current leader, that's a very difficult thing to handle within Mm. um, the whips office. And so, yeah, that was a period when I have to say my memory is I spent a lot longer worrying about what was happening within the parliamentary Labour party than I ever did about our legislation and Mm. what the, what the, actual official opposition was doing
0: yes i mean because you said a sizable majority um mm. and so the risk of losing votes was was, was pretty minimal yeah. but in terms of those those plots one of the things that the whips are uh, responsible for is providing sort of intelligence to the the prime minister on what's going on in 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 the party how did that work as you say that, that there were sort of shades of, of, of opinion in, within the whips office that perhaps um, confused that picture slightly mm. I was looking at um, some of the uh, the history of, of the whips office on the conservative side where you know they they ran it certainly sort of in the Uh, 1980s and um, in earlier times very much as a kind of old boys club um, and a secret society there you know it was all a sort of um, secret code of whips I think the Labour whips operation has always been slightly different to that but but they were always saying that um, you know they expected to have um, a whip for every sort of element of the party and that they would would pick up dissent pretty quickly and pass it on and people would would leak things to them that they sort of Operate almost as a kind of spy network within the parliamentary party is the impression that, that I got. I don't know whether it's, it's the same now. But how much of that were you responsible for? You obviously had a responsibility to the prime minister to, to let him know what was going on. What was that sort of intelligence operation like and how did that work in practice?
1: I think the Labour Whips Office was rather more saw itself. I mean, let's remember, this was sort of when we believed ourselves as a party to be pretty good organisationally. And the Whips Office sort of manifested that belief in organisation and communication as a way to manage the business and any dissent that there was. So essentially, we had a sort of the team of whips had, I suppose, in sort of modern management parlance you might call it some sort of matrix management system so whips had a departmental responsibility where they were obviously um part of the ministerial team where they knew what the business was that was coming up where they did the sort of mundane stuff around staffing the um statutory instrument committees and things like that but they also were the people who sort of perhaps were at the heart of where there might be um problems with the policy uh you know difficulties internal difficulties with the policy that was being developed then people also had a regional responsibility and there really what you did essentially was to keep in contact with the with your regional mps so those were the calls over the weekend you know about how people were doing what were they feeling about things a bit of pastoral stuff but certainly if we thought that there was trouble (laughs) coming then we would do a Okay, everybody, this weekend, you're all ringing around your people, finding out what they're feeling about things, reporting that back, you know, very structured use of the special advisors to maintain the sort of records of where people were on everything. Very strong use of knowing what the numbers are. You know, it always surprised me, actually, when there was some trouble for the coalition government at the beginning that the whips office didn't seem to they said things which then didn't emerge now there are two problems there one don't go talking as a whip if you don't know what's going to happen two if you don't know your numbers then you're in trouble you really do need to sort of absolutely know who's all right who's a problem who's who you can get over so that you can communicate to the prime minister and others what the numbers are looking like and you know if i had had a rebellion and I hadn't known practically down, you know, probably you could be one or two out. But if I hadn't known pretty much down to that level, who was going to do what at the crunch point, I would have considered that a failure of the whips operation.
0: Mm. So you you almost physically had a list of who were the, the, the troublemakers. Not almost. On- we did physically. <laughs> 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 but, but on, on different issues as well. so yeah. so in, in on particular um items of legislation, but also more generally in terms of the prime minister's leadership, um, Do you know, as well. well
1: that not that was more sort of loose intelligence i would say if we had a difficult vote so we did try we did a trident vote for example which we weren't going to lose but where we we did quite a big operation led actually by bob ainsworth who was my deputy chief whip who then course then went on to be the secretary of state for defense um of trying to sort of win people round to support that there we would have had and on other you know on other votes where there was a rebellion there we would literally have had a list and columns and we would have known which columns people were in and we would have known what we were using to target particular people you know are we going to get x who they respect to talk to them about that are we going are they going to come and talk to me I think you know—is it going to be a friendly conversation or a meeting without coffee? <laughs> um, you know, if it's Jeremy Corbyn, there's no bloody point anyway because nothing you do is going to ch- change his mind. <laughs> you know, he was in that "let's not bother" category. I have to say. Um, so yes, it was quite uh, structured and organised, but that was because on those things, essentially, the WHIPS team was as one. As one, you know, you wouldn't have expected anybody in the whips office to have policy doubts about any of those issues and if they had they would have gone um but when it came to the tony blair gordon brown thing that that was more difficult because it didn't feel so much as if you could i mean it sounds hard but it didn't feel like you could trust the coherence of the whips office mm. in the same way as you could on policy issues and that was that was difficult that was difficult for a lot you know a lot about the whips offices. I mean, one of the reasons I love the job is because it is the epitome of a political team. It's one of the few teams where you actually do feel as if you really are working as one and you've got a common objective. And there isn't there is, of course, personal Uh, personal ambition but actually you you're not going to succeed by going off and doing some sort of policy thing off on your own you're only which you can do in a ministerial team you're only going to succeed if you all work as one and therefore there's a great esprit de corps in the whip's office which is which i really really enjoyed that broke down a bit around the issue of who's going to be the next leader
0: Mm. And that sort of camaraderie, um, I suppose, as well. You have a, a regular opportunities to to celebrate a win, um, particularly when you've got a decent majority. That <laughs> you know every vote you win essentially is a is a victory for the whips office, and particularly mm-hmm. on difficult issues as well, I suppose. Absolutely. But but on that um, issue of the TBGBs, as as that went on, you mentioned the the curry house plot, I think, which was probably the most significant um, challenge during your your year there. That sort of arose quite suddenly. I think um, I was reading Tony Blair's account of it and he says that this was really sparked by an interview he gave to, I think it was Phil Webster of the Times, mm. uh, in which he was asked about going on and and said that uh, he wasn't going to name a date. Mm. Um, and that sort of triggered um, mm. Gordon Brown to, to, to sort of give the, the nod to, to start yeah. manoeuvring and um, at what point did did you pick up that this was going to happen? I mean, was it something that Freddie quickly after that interview appeared? Because in, in Blair's account, he suggests that he was on a on a, a regional visit when I think Hillary Kaufman sort of came to him and and, and said, This is happening. There's a letter doing the rounds. Was that something which you had some advance sight of or that you you'd picked up um some time in advance
1: well not really because if i'd had advanced sight of it i would have told the prime minister you know i met mm. uh, weekly i met with him and talked to him about um what was happening um he had he still had um although i had taken over as chief whip and hillary armstrong were, had gone to the cabinet office hillary armstrong was still very involved particularly around those issues of protecting him essentially and so i think Although I suppose there was some feeling that this might happen. I don't think I I, I don't think we knew it was coming in the form that it was coming in. though.
0: And um, the the form it came in was a a letter that was um, signed by MPs um, and one minister, um, Mm. Tom Watson, Mm. uh, who put his name (laughs) to this, this letter. Talk us through how that conversation went when you discovered that a minister in the government had signed a letter calling on the prime minister to leave.
1: Um. Well, we weren't. I'm not sure people were very surprised at which minister it was, but essentially you can't call for the Prime Minister to um, go and still remain a minister, which was sort of the point that I made to Tom in a slightly awkward phone call that I did from Euston Station on my way back to my constituency, uh, in which I said to him he needed to really remove his name from the letter or he needed to stand down, and he chose to stand down. So um, there we go.
0: Mm. And... In terms of the other people on the list the the ones who signed the letter from what you said before you have sort of running totals on particular bills and particular issues could you have predicted who the who the MPs were?
1: Um, Probably not because we as I as I said before not because we as a whips office had really done an operation on that there was more of an operation in number 10 around who was likely to be in and out and that was where that was handled more during the immediate aftermath of the letter. Um, you probably could, you know, it, it wasn't quite as clear in the Parliamentary Labour Party as some people would la- like to paint it as to you know who were the Blairites and who were the Brownites. But there were some people there were there were there were some people who would very clearly fall into one category or the other, and therefore you could have guessed that they were going to be signing that letter. There were others who, you know, for all sorts of different reasons, some who legitimately thought, actually, Tony is coming to the end of his time and um, in order to ensure a smooth transition, we ought to, you know, he ought to name a day and we ought to shift. Those who thought to themselves, Gordon's going to be the next prime minister and thought, well, I'm going to be top of his list when he's looking for ministers. So, you know, for personal ambition, I suspect. Uh, There were others who sort of genuinely so i would put tom watson in this category genuinely thought that gordon would make a really good prime minister w- wanted to support him and wanted to make sure it happened sooner rather than later so there were all sorts of different categories of of people who signed that which was why in some ways it was so it was so awkward because i mean certainly for me personally i felt you know there are people on here who are my good mates i mean Ian Austin, who I've always been close to mm. because of the West Midlands link, he supported me in my very, very first attempt. Well, not my very first attempt, my very first serious attempt to be selected for a parliamentary seat, rang me up to say, effectively to say, is there any way that we can sort of encourage you to become part of this? And I I said, no, I'm not, not interested in it. But, you know, he, he I considered as a friend. I still do consider as a friend. So it was, you know, it, when these things happen within a party, it's always tough. Because
0: so, so he, he rang you up during that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, and wondered if you would be part of um of, of this move. Yes. Oh, that's yes. quite extraordinary. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, because they were enlisting as much support as they could get.
0: But yeah. to phone the government chief whip. Well to, true. To, to, <laughs> <laughs> to I mean, was I mean was was he suggesting to you this was the moment when um perhaps the, the woman in the grey suit should go to the prime minister and tell him to 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 go? Is that sort the idea? Of. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Gosh. <laughs> Well, that is quite extraordinary and, um, and quite bold, I would suggest, uh, for, for him to, to, to do that. And in the immediate aftermath as you say you met the prime minister weekly to sort of pass on intelligence and and review business Um, what was your involvement with the the sort of immediate reaction i think it was a day later that he he actually not quite named the day but said that the the party conference would be his last yeah um and and took some of the heat out of it were you involved in those discussions you said number 10 were sort of leading on the immediate response but what was your involvement in that
1: my, I, I, It was more peripheral. I mean, I, you know, I was involved in them, um, but it was more around the handling of the people within the Parliamentary Labour Party who had, you know, the PPSs, for example, who had signed the letter and others, rather than his planning for his future. There was a much tighter group around him and we had to keep the business going as well. So I was more involved in doing that.
0: Mm. once he had announced that he was uh, going to stand down the following year some of the heat sort of went out of it how difficult was it to maintain discipline once the prime minister had announced that he was going to to leave there's a always a fear and uh, an inevitability that once someone has announced they're going that uh, people start looking to the the successor and in this case uh, there was very little question about who the successor was going to be. Gordon Brown had, as you say, um, a very sort of clearly defined group of people in the Parliamentary Labour Party who were his supporters. Did you start to get problems with a almost a shadow whipping operation for the leader in waiting from that point on?
1: Not in terms of the overall uh, whipping, because there was... I suppose two things happened first of all there was almost a sort of decompression when once Tony had made his decision um because people then sort of thought fine okay well we know it's going to happen what then happened of course was that you did have although it was obvious although looking back it is obvious that it was going to be Gordon Brown there was talk about other people possibly um Uh, standing against him I mean of course John McDonnell famously Mm. attempted to stand against him didn't get enough nominations but there was you know there was suggestion of whether or not potential other serious candidates would stand against him but they were discouraged from doing that so in the end it was only Gordon and then he didn't really need to they didn't really need to whip on specific issues at that point because it then became clear that Gordon was going to be the next leader and then he could start having conversations with with people as he had with me for example about what you know what sort of role would you be interested in Mm. doing in my government sort of conversations what do you think are the things i should be prioritizing so it was actually quite smooth once the original decision had been made
0: Mm. so i mean things like the um the education bill that had passed i think by that point before that uh, before that happened i'm trying to think if there were any other sort of major sort of flagship um, blair pieces of legislation that had caused disquiet from that point on there
1: was a bit of um It wasn't so much a sort of Brownite, Blairite problem, but I did, for example, have to do some work with John Reid then as Home Secretary on, I think it was the extradition bill, a a bill around extradition Um, that there was a sort of some rebellion and Mm. concern around. So I had my, so it was quite funny actually. So I had my first meeting in the Home Secretary's Office, as the Chief Whip with John Reid, talking about how we were going to handle handle that. And I don't think he was doing any terrorism stuff. I'm racking my brain now. Um, But, you know, obviously, Home Office legislation always has the capability of creating an internal um, rebellion within the Parliamentary Labour Party. So I did have conversations with him about that. And he's always spoken very fondly incidentally about my time as chief whip he thinks I did a good job as chief whip I don't mm. know if that's code for under less good job as home secretary but I take it as <laughs> I'll just take it as praise he, or... he
0: didn't think you were unfit for purpose in the job I think no, thank,
1: uh... <laughs> luckily I was one of the few things that wasn't unfit for purpose <laughs>
0: <laughs> good stuff um and we, we've talked a lot about the the internal dissent and obviously that's a major part of the of the whipping uh, operation but there's also what's known as the usual channels. And this is something which uh, a lot of people won't appreciate in terms of getting um, Parliament and business to work properly. There has to be some degree of coordination and discussion between the government and the opposition. How does that work? There's, um, I think, is it a daily meeting between the whips to to manage government business whilst uh, the House is sitting? What happens in those meetings? And what's the tone of that those kind of discussions?
1: Well, quite a lot of the business is done between the essentially the sort of chief civil servant who works with the um, chief whip and the his opposite number uh, uh, in the opposition whips office there's a weekly meeting between the chief whips Um, so I met my opposite number weekly usually I think on a Monday afternoon if I remember rightly the negotiation the the sort of detailed negotiation of what the parliamentary business was going to look like would usually have been done by then and there might be the 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 odd we would just be sort of agreeing it and perhaps the opposition chief wit would say look on this day we've got a big do, could we sort of put some business on that means that, you know, it's a one-line whip rather than a three-line whip and, you know, I would, we would usually say, yeah, that's fine or, you know, Um, there was then the sort of whole pairing operation that goes on between the pairing whips, which is like a science, no, it's like a black art (laughs) that even as chief whip I couldn't understand and then there are the negotiations that are happening to determine program motions and um the work on given individual bits of legislation how the committees might pan out um timings all of that conversation that goes on so there is a lot of um, cross-party discussion and coordination just to help the business to operate really between the whips that is the that is the day-to-day business actually the times when you are organizing against each other are actually pretty small most of it is about cooperating in order to enable the political differences to be demonstrated through both voting and debate but not but but not to create you know that that actually can't happen if there's chaos mm. and nobody can plan for things
0: yes so in a sense it's kind of the geneva convention of um parliamentary warfare isn't it that you've got uh this sort of uh the rules of the game and but but the, the occasions We're
1: exchanging on... prisoners that sort of thing that's what pairing <laughs> <Okay>. is <isn't.
0: laughs> yes that's, that's, that's very apt isn't it but you've then got the occasions where you know, the opposition does try to um you know pull a trick and and yeah. uh you know with very difficult when they haven't got anything you know approaching Uh, the opportunity of defeating the government if you've got a healthy majority but there will be occasions when the opposition wants to catch the government unawares um wants to try and pull a, a vote on something out of the blue um when you've got those sort of ongoing discussions on a sort of daily basis about managing business how do how do you react when when those sorts of things happen because you you must expect them so it's quite a sort of a strange dichotomy i'm trying to get my head around the sort of the idea that you know you've got this fairly Sort of civilized exchange on sort of managing business, as you say, accommodating things that the opposition want. If um, you know, if, if you want to have a lo- light business one evening, and on the other hand, you've always got the suspicion at the back of your mind, surely that this might be a, a, a trick, that this might be something that they're going to um, turn around and say, "Well, actually, we're not all going to go to the Tory Winter Ball tonight. They're actually going to be round the corner and, and come piling in to try and defeat you." Um, mm. So, I mean, how, how many times do did that happen? And also, is that something that, that, that makes that relationship difficult?
1: It happens pretty rarely, actually, because it's only worthwhile doing if you think you stand a good chance. And of course, I we had a pretty big majority. So I suspect it probably happened less for me than it might have happened for others when there was a small, um, much smaller majority. In some ways, it's quite useful because what it means truthfully is that you can say to your own MPs who all think they're bloody, you know, understand what's going to happen and who would sometimes say, well, you know, you've put on a whip for this, but it's obvious that the Tories aren't going to do or, you know, why can't I go home? Because it all seems to be really, really straightforward. And we've got a massive majority because I know that all those Tories have gone off somewhere or another. And, And to be able to say to them, look, you're being naive because actually, what they might exactly be wanting to do is to see lots of is to see us send lots of people home so that they can then pile back in again and defeat us because that is the only way that that's going to happen or they can embarrass us in some sort of way. That that's what you need to be able to say to your people. So when it occasionally does happen, that sort of enables you to say, "See, we told you." Um, and but equally, my whips, you know, when you when you're in the whips office, you spend a lot of time wandering around in the chamber in the corridors, in the tea room, what's going on, who's talking to who, are there lots of people about aren't there, you know, what's happening. And if my people had not got a sniff of something that was potentially about to happen on either side, they probably weren't doing their job as well as they actually did do it. So Mm. we usually sort of had a clue if there was a, from either side, if there was some sort of plot brewing.
0: Mm. So essentially you're you're operating as the chief of the secret police within the, within the parliamentary party. Uh, just Without the to, torture. <laughs> trying <laughs> to sort of like uh, manage this sort of spy operation and instill discipline by fear, uh, which, which which takes me on nicely to your time as Home Secretary. Um, you you then, when Gordon Brown became Prime Minister, uh, he appointed you as the first female Home Secretary. And one of the things I've, I've noted in, in my study on this is that there are issues on which uh, the opposition uh, generally try to be more responsible than on other issues. And the major one of those is national security. And we have what, what are known as Privy Council briefings where senior opposition figures, the leader of the opposition, possibly the Shadow Home Secretary, um, are given uh, confidential briefings on Privy Council terms. Was that something which, as, as Home Secretary, you made much use of? You you had, I think, a couple of uh, of shadows uh, during your time in, in the job, but uh, famously you had a, a baptism of fire in the job with a, a terrorist attack that, that took place within hours of uh, of your appointment. Uh, at what point did, did you, uh, at that point, bring in the, I think it was David Davis, wasn't Davis, it, I think, um, the yeah. Shadow Home Secretary? Um, was there any briefing that took place um, over that?
1: Yeah, the first time I talked to David Davis was on the f- my first day as Home Secretary when I did precisely as you described, Nigel, and called him and briefed him about what we knew about the sort of unfolding terrorist threat at that point because there'd been the um, the foiled attack in Haymarket in London. And then the next day, the terrorists had travelled up to Scotland and drove a jeep into the front of Glasgow Airport, and etc. But on the Friday when we had had the sort of debrief about what the security agencies knew about that attack what they thought about who the people were what they knew about who they were tracking or whatever that i briefed david davis at that point on as you say privy council terms um about what we knew and what was going to happen and then over that weekend i briefed him I think at least another time. And then I did the statement on the Monday. So obviously I talked to him as well about what was gonna be in the, the statement. And, um, you know, you always brief, you always give your opposition a copy of the statement, but with a statement like that, I talked to him through it, I, I think, and mm. in terms of what I was going to say and what we knew at that particular point. So yes, that, that, that was probably the high point of our cooperation <laughs> because of course, David Davis is quite an unusual shadow home secretary because as many will comment there's you know, when you become the home secretary or the shadow home secretary, you do become exercised and gripped by the necessity to keep the country safe. Essentially, some people would argue you become overly controlled by the security agencies. I think that's wrong, but you do become very gripped by your sense of responsibility. David Davis stock in trade was a scepticism about controls and terror legislation, you know, to such an extent that, of course, he stood down from Parliament in order to fight a by-election on the basis of the sort of authoritarianism of my approach or the government's approach, um, and which was a slightly hollow um, gesture. But anyway, that's. I, I, thing. I remember
0: actually, um, not 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 to get too gossipy about it, but I do remember being in um, the Conservative War Room when when that happened, and. Um, uh, the party chairman's reaction was um, was was quite quite something. Um, the, the 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 time, as you say that um, that you you were speaking to him about that was was on on terror issues, but but on on, on issues as you say like um, detention and um, civil liberties issues, he was as you say quite a staunch opponent. Yeah. How difficult is it to, to to deal with that sort of dichotomy? On the one hand, you you're sort of telling him this is necessary for in terms of national security, but you know that he's he's taking a different view on 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 the measures that you're proposing for it
1: well I sort of got the hang of him I suppose quite quickly so I wasn't that surprised I found him quite difficult and my view of him I mean it wasn't I didn't trust him but I sort of was thought it was pretty inevitable that he was going to oppose a lot of things Um, it meant I'm not sure these things are related but for example when we were doing the counter legislation and the you know 42 days um, pre-charge detention controversy interestingly I said to the prime minister that I thought that he should earlier on talk to the leader of the opposition about whether or not there was a way that we could have a sort of common position Mm. on this Gordon wasn't keen to do it he eventually did do it but they didn't they couldn't didn't come to a sort of um Mm. place which which we could agree on and of course in the end eventually um given the opposition we withdrew that piece of legislation uh so that was not a successful use of our contact with the opposition in order to try and find a way through that particular issue.
0: Mm. But like any of these issues with, you know, from, we talked about in terms of being chief whip, you're, you're secure in your majority as a government, but the only uh, grounds on which the opposition is going to win anything is if there is a significant rebellion. So you're having to keep an eye on both things. So um, you're, you're looking at sort of what the likely response is going to be. One of the great unknowns, I think, is is about the extent to which the the prospect of opposition, whether it's from the government side or whether it's from the opposition benches, um, affects your thinking in government. So, as you say, you you spoke to the prime minister and, and said, you know, essentially, this isn't going to fly and we're going to have to withdraw it. Um how many times does that figure in your thinking when you're you're putting together policy? Because we can't measure that because we don't know the things that you don't propose. But it must figure in when you're developing policy and when you're developing measures to put forward, am I going to be able to get this through or is it going to be something that's going to be very difficult or is it going to sort of have a huge amount of media opposition and public sort of outcry, whatever? How much does that figure in your in your thinking when you're developing policy?
1: Oh, it figures it figures an enormous amount uh it figures in what you think you can do it figures in how you communicate it it figures in the order that you do things when you do them it figures because of course that opposition differs at different points in the period of a government so you know you're much more gung-ho immediately after a general election than you'll be in the run-up to the next general election i mean you know it's politics it's about policy but it's also about the extent to which you can get that through parliament sell it to the public win support for it so um, it's at the heart of uh, i think your policy development actually and Mm. quite often you will think about how you're going to get a feel for what people will doesn't mean to say that you would back off you know so the education bill is a good example Tony Blair really believed in it there was a lot of opposition so we went for it and turned around the opposition sometimes you might think to yourself is this worth the candle um or does the prime minister have the stomach for it or have you got a big enough majority and then you might back off earlier
0: Mm. it's really interesting because I, I remember putting this question to Michael Howard once and he he was adamant that he would never um, have changed his uh, position um, in in view of what he thought other people would think of it, that he was just, he absolutely, you know, uh, certain of his convictions and that other people's view didn't play into it, which I, I think, um, to be kind to him, is probably stretching it slightly. Um, interestingly, I, I, I put the same thing to Douglas Hurd and he, he said, well, of course, <laughs> as, as, you, as you said, of course, you have to bear in mind. And actually what Douglas Hurd um, told me, I remember, was that when he was Foreign Secretary, um, the fact that he had Gerald Kaufman as his um, shadow who was very effective was something which really influenced him in terms of making sure he was completely across the detail. Uh, when he made a statement he had absolute authority and control of what he was going to say because he knew his shadow was going to be uh, well briefed and and be able to catch them out you, you you've spoken about david davis being quite an effective opponent you you then faced dominic grieve um and then chris grayling um I, I i wonder how you rate the sort of the three shadow home secretaries that you faced across the dispatch box and whether the difference in the uh the opposition that you received in in the house had an impact uh you know did you feel you had to be better briefed for some of them than others
1: Dominic Grieve was a very short period of time, wasn't it? If I remember Mm. rightly. Yeah. Um,
0: About six months, I think. Oh, Uh, uh, Immediately after David Davis's uh, resignation.
1: David Davis, you had to be well briefed because he used to do this thing where he would pick on something quite obscure. Mm. Um, I think it was partly because he wanted to sort of suggest, I mean, I'm I'm maybe traducing him here, but I think he wanted to slightly do a sort of, I'm the sort of senior bloke with a handle on this, taking it to that sort of young female Home Secretary and I'm going to show that she's really not quite up to it type but feel. Mm. Um, but in the end, I think it was fine. Um, Dominic Grieve was, is sort of, you know, more serious and, but not very, at that point, not very sort of, He couldn't. He couldn't drum up a lot of sort of political impetus around the opposition that he was making, Mm. and Chris Grayling was not very effective at all. I would say (laughs) I didn't worry so much about. um, I I was more experienced by then. I knew the brief very well. I sort of was in control of what I was doing. I didn't feel that he landed many punches.
0: I think that's uh, that, uh, having heard you talk about him before. I think that's that, that that's the polite version. I think, <laughs> I think if I, I would recommend that people go back and listen to um, the For the Many podcast. I think you've said many ruder things about Chris Grayling uh, on on there, but it's um, uh, as you say, it's um, it's one of those things where there are there are tactics at play i mean particularly in question time um i think you're referring to david davis would sort of uh, ask a short question to begin with to sort of say what are the figures on this yeah um and sort of you know you have to flip through your folder to try and uh, try and reply to it yeah. um those are sort of tactical things but yeah. i think you know there, there are those other more strategic things um as as well in terms of the the the, the media being sort of another part of the, the kind of universe of opposition you could potentially get on on issues of the, the Home Secretary deals with you're inevitably under a huge amount of media scrutiny does that perhaps play more into into your thinking than than what the the Shadow Home Secretary of the week is going to say in the House of Commons because that that perhaps is, is more significant in terms of the government's uh, the government's mm. popularity
1: Mm. No, I think that's absolutely true, Nigel. And the Home Office is the place where you're dealing with the issues that resonate with the British people's fears and therefore are easy to sort of hype up in newspapers as a sort of headline that's going to cause you, you trouble. And therefore you are concerned, you know, not in a sort of that's it we've got to keep the Daily Mail happy sort of a way because I genuinely never did that but in a we we need to try and think about how we communicate this so that we can be as reassuring as possible because actually this is something that people are legitimately worried about because essentially being Home Secretary is how do you keep the country secure from crime from terrorism uh, in terms of its feeling about the control that you have over immigration identity and all of those types of things so um therefore being able to reassure and communicate and to use the media to do that is actually pretty uh, pretty important to to be done and you know the there is a resonance and a sort of feeding that goes on between what the opposition will talk about and what the media will talk about so that's tricky and then of course in my time as um Home Secretary, I also had some very internal opposition because I had leaks from within the Home Office that were organised, essentially, mm. by um, David Davis and Damien Green. So um, that felt very difficult because if you can't be confident, because until we knew where they were coming from, mm. if you can't be confident about the discussions that you're having in the innermost sanctum of your uh, department, because as it turned out, it was people very very close to the in fact in the private office uh, mm. who were responsible for the leaks then that's hard because then you're not quite sure who you can trust and who you can um you know explore ideas with and um share that sort of policy development with
0: mm. and and finally because I, I need need to let you go and um and rehearse for the strictly final <laughs> but um I just wanted to talk about, sort of, just in 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 general, your your view of of the role of opposition in politics. You um, spent your your whole parliamentary career in government. Um, you, you never experienced um, the, the the pain and, uh, and and tribulations of being in opposition uh, mm-hmm. yourself. But over the last ten years, uh, you still have many friends and um, and former colleagues uh, who have been involved. It's a very difficult time for a party to be in, in opposition, and particularly when. They're facing a government they profoundly disagree with and uh, and then facing a leader that they don't particularly support. It's been a very difficult time over the last 10 years for, for the Labour Party. Is, is there a part of you that sort of wishes that you were able to play a part in rebuilding the party, uh, helping that opposition effort? And, and how do you think you would approach it?
1: <laughs> Golly. Um, I've got mixed feelings about this, Nigel, to be honest with you, because in one way, I knew I knew as soon as I was elected in 1997, I would never be an opposition MP because my seat was just sort of one of those key marginal seats that would determine if if what government we had, essentially. So although in 2010, I was sad to lose my seat, I was also pleased not to go into um, opposition. I would have found it intensely frustrating. Um I think if you've been, I was a minister for 10 years. If you've been a minister with all of the influence and power and support that you have as a minister, and then you have to become a shadow minister or or a backbench opposition MP, that's a big change that I saw people really struggle with. Um, I've always said... Uh, the worst day in government is better than the best day in opposition. My problem with the last 10 years of the Labour Party is that there were too many times when it felt as if we didn't understand what the purpose of opposition is, which in my book is to be in it for as short period of time as possible mm-hmm. and then to get back into government again. And certainly, you know, the Corbyn years, we, I mean, that that is a man who has lived on opposition, even when his party was in government, he was still in opposition, as I pointed out earlier. Mm. So he is about opposition. And that began to permeate the party and our approach. We began, even a bit under Ed Miliband, we began to be in opposition to our own government, retrospectively, uh, in terms of not, you know, bigging up our achievements and criticizing our record and I hated that as well because I've never subscribed to the view that you say to people vote Labour because we were pretty shit last time <laughs> you know it's sort of not a not an election winning approach so everything about it I found frustrating I had made a decision after 2010 partly because of the sort of personal things that happened to me and the and the hassle around it and the fact that I was quite young and therefore I could sort of do other things not to seek re-election again and I'm glad I did that because that meant I'm sort of free to do to do other things so I see my role now really as you know I I hope that I am personally supportive to people that I care about and think are doing a good job in um the Labour Party um, in terms of sort of moral support financially when I can, I campaign for people that I care about and want to see elected, I'm um, on the Management Committee of Labour Women's Network because I want us to sort of maintain and develop the diversity of the representation that we're putting forward. Uh, I obviously don't keep my mouth shut about things and um, do quite a lot of commentary and I will try uh, you know and I won't be there's no point being a commentator if you're going to be sort of slavishly loyal to your party but um, you know Ian Dale accuses me of saying and Keir Starmer said this and Keir Starmer said that so I'm a <laughs> lot I'm a lot more positive about my party's opposition now than I have been probably for most of the last uh 10 years. So that's the sort of position that I that I take now. Keir has got a massive task, because essentially we haven't done that role of opposition, i.e. to get out of it as quickly as possible for the last 10 years. He strikes me as being serious about that. He's made some tough but right calls on getting the party back to a sensible place, but he's got a massive task to get out of opposition and back into government again. <laughs>
0: Thanks very much indeed for for joining us on the podcast and uh, I'll let you go and get your sequins on and your spray tan done.
1: (laughs) My pleasure, Nigel.
0: (laughs) Well, that just about brings us to the end of this festive edition of Opposition Cast. My huge thanks to Jackie Smith for joining me for what was a really enjoyable and illuminating discussion, not least the revelation that a Labour MP tried to get the chief whip involved in a plot to remove Tony Blair. I'm not sure I'd heard that before. And if you're listening to this on Friday the 18th of December, when it goes up, uh, you can see Jackie's triumphant return to Strictly for the group dance in the final of Strictly Come Dancing uh, on Saturday, that's tomorrow night at, I think, 6 o'clock, and uh, available, I'm sure, on iPlayer if you're listening to it afterwards. If you've enjoyed the podcast do please spread the word. Uh, We've got some exciting plans for the new year and uh, I hope to also bring you another edition over the Christmas period but uh, until then do please look after yourselves, have a lovely Christmas and hopefully a better new year and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies and presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Do please subscribe and listen to our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts from.